Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Jason Park, who's the CEO and co-founder of Empress Therapeutics, a company that's working at the intersection of genetics and drug discovery and development. But they have a very unique twist, I think, from almost every other company that I've come across. Specifically, they're focusing on understanding the parts of the human genome that make enzymes and other proteins that either create or modify small molecules. And we're going to get into this in some detail. My explanation isn't crystal clear because the science is complex. Jason's going to break it down for us. But what, why I think this is so interesting is because it finds small molecules that are already familiar to our human biochemistry. So logically, in, in my mind, it makes sense that small molecules our body is already used to creating, processing, are going to be more effective starting points for therapies. They're likely going to be more safe, also potentially more effective if our body's producing them already in, in its natural disease-fighting um, context. So we're going to go a deep dive into this today, both on the science, but also the, the company building side, which uh, Jason has a ton of experience with. So with that intro, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Patrick, thank you for having me on. And I think you did a great job of summarizing what we're all about. Thank you. I am uh, confident that you'll do an even better job. So I gave that brief intro, but I'd love actually to hear from you. How did the idea come about initially? Where is the company today? And maybe in the process, you can give us a little bit of a quick primer on the central dogma, DNA, RNA, protein. Many people in the listeners of the podcast are going to be very familiar with this, but it can't hurt to revisit it because it's going to be important, I think, to our discussion. Yeah. So let me start there, Patrick. We are a company that's making medicines. You know, at the end of the day, we're a biotechnology company. <clears throat> the history of medicine started really started with chemistry. It started with us realizing that there were chemical compounds that were made in nature, that were made by microbes, made by fungi, made by plants. Heck, you can even go find Neanderthals. I think recently someone found Neanderthals with willow bark in their teeth. And of right. course, that's where you get salicylic acid, aspirin. So that's where we started. We started with the realization that chemistry made by nature could have really profound effects. Most of our antibiotics, most of our chemotherapeutic drugs came from that. And you know, actually, if you do, do the math, it's something like 70% of all small molecule medicines. We call these things small molecules because they're chemistry, they're short or small. 70% came from naturally occurring compounds or derivatives or were inspired by these natural, naturally occurring compounds. The advent of genomic sequencing which I know you're very familiar with, this idea that within all of us is DNA. You know, that is the central piece of information storage that encodes everything for life. You know, within DNA, once we figured out how to sequence DNA, what did we do? We started looking at individuals with different diseases around the world and asking, well, what's different about their genes that we think might explain why this particular disease occurred and this concept of genetic variation and disease association. And that was really powerful. So that was one unlock from the power of genes, the idea of identifying important genes and ergo important mechanisms. The other unlock came from when we realized that you could use DNA technologies to make really important molecules. And what do I mean by that? So the central dogma that you alluded to is that DNA, what does it encode? It encodes instructions for RNA, which we all now know, thanks to the Moderna vaccine and, and the power of, of what mRNA can do. So DNA encodes RNA, which encodes the instructions for proteins. And once we realized that, you know, we knew that there were important proteins in the body, like antibodies, like cytokines, 
we could take DNA in the lab, make recombinant versions of, put it back into a cell, because this is where all the magic happens anyways inside the body. And you can get that cell to produce a product that you want in antibodies, proteins, etc. What Empress is doing is we were tying those three concepts together. The idea that chemistry makes for great drugs because we've been using it for hundreds of years. It's also because it's the only modality that gets inside of cells because it's the only one you can regularly take, you know, orally by mouth in a pill. So chemistry makes for great drugs. That's one concept. Second is genes encode DNA, encodes RNA, encodes proteins. And it's now possible over the past few years, it became possible to realize that there are particular proteins, biosynthetic enzymes that make or modify chemistry. So now you can go directly from genes to chemical compounds. I know that sounds wild, but I'm, I'm here to show you that, that we can actually do this now. You can go from genes to chemical compounds. And so you can very quickly, the same way that we make biologic drugs, you can very quickly access really important chemistry. And then the third concept is we're doing the same thing that genomic sequence technology unlocked, which is we can now look across individuals around the world, look for the genes that encode chemistry, ergo look for chemistry that have associations with clinical outcomes and find the th chemistries inside of our bodies that we think were made by evolution that drive those outcomes and therefore really important. So by putting all those three things together, the outcome has been we can go from some clinical data, a patient sample, to drug-like chemical compounds in about a year, which is maybe a fourth the time that it would typically take and probably a couple orders of magnitude cheaper than it would typically take. Amazing. The parallel with the biologics actually is a really helpful one for me. I'll play it back because I think that was a really an important point that you mentioned how with biologics, you create recombinant DNA and ultimately the output is a protein of some sort that's uh, fueled a revolution in medicine. And what you're saying on the parallel track of the work that you're doing is you can then go DNA all the way through to creating a, essentially a small molecule out the other side. And I'm, I'm sure there are some differences on the process in between. But the the idea here is that if you make that link from DNA all the way through to enzyme and small molecule, either output or modification on the other side, then you then have a scalable system and a model where you can, much in the way that biologics have created countless antibodies that have changed medicine, you've got the opportunity to do the same thing with small molecules, but starting from DNA rather than starting from a organic chemistry approach or something like that to create the molecule. Is that right? Yeah, Patrick, that's exactly right. And and maybe to, to bring it to life in a different way, you know, when we talked about the power of genetic variation and genetic association disease, for the past several decades, the way we've used that in the biopharmaceutical industry, for the most part, has been to say, we can look for biological targets, proteins that are associated with a disease because of some mutation or genetic variation. And then when we've tried to drug those things, those proteins, those disease targets with chemistry, we don't actually really know what chemical compound is going to do the job. You know, so the industry went from having hundreds of thousands of compounds, literally in vials, you know, these libraries, they call them, to millions to billion compound libraries, you know, DNA encoded libraries, DELs or fragment based libraries. And now people are talking about trillions of compounds in silico. But if you think about that from that perspective, we're effectively just throwing more and more things at it, more and more compounds, you know, even if they're virtual, at a disease target because we don't really know what works. And 
the reason we started Empress was a completely different. We, we decided to take the other tack. We said, look, DNA encodes this evolutionary information. If what you just described is possible, again, we've made it possible to go from genes, figure out how those genes encode multiple enzymes that work together to make a particular chemical compound. Guess what? You've got three and a half billion years worth of evolutionary experimentation in DNA just sitting inside of our bodies, inside each of us. There's 100 to 200 million non-human genes. Most of that, a lot of that material is dedicated towards making chemistry. And so you've got this unimaginably large database that just sits in DNA that you can now access and say, somewhere in here are compounds that evolved to shape human health or possibly cause disease, yep. and we can now access it. Yeah, amazing. I've got a million and one questions on this, and we're going to get there. But I, before we go too far into Empress and the science, I actually just want to hear a little bit, and for the audience's benefit, about your background. You have a PhD in biomedical engineering. Empress is not the first company you've co-founded, so you have a you have experience starting companies in biotechs before. You were co-founder and CEO at Sonata before this. How did you get into this? What do you like about early stage biotechs? This isn't your first rodeo here, so clearly you're you know what you're going into, and you're back for more. So yes, I do have a PhD, Patrick. I'm the son of Korean immigrants. So my mother still tells me that it's not too late to be a real doctor and get the MD. Um, but my story really started, you know, 17 years ago. I was the first employee at a biotech company that was actually making nanoparticle drug delivery systems. And it was trying to figure out how do we take some of these compounds that you know, occur in nature through synthesis, some chemotherapeutic drugs, that we know work, but are really toxic. And how do we better deliver it? How do we use engineering principles to figure out how to get the drug to where it needs to go? And that was my first experience with chemistry. And uh, I ultimately was the inventor of a lipid nanoparticle that went into the clinic. And that's an amazing moment. You know, this feeling that I invented something, we invented something that could has the potential to help thousands of patients thousands of people whom you may never even meet. And that sort of is what sent me down this road of biotech is awesome. Let's go start some companies. I ended up doing a PhD in bioengineering and immunology as well. Ended up starting another company during that period of time and then became a management consultant for the Boston Consulting Group, working mostly with large pharma and global health organizations where I really got to understand how do you scale up technical innovations to really help people on a global scale. And despite that, I always love doing science. And I think of what we do as we write science fiction. We describe a world that doesn't yet exist. And then our job as operators, being in the company, the reason, one of the reasons I took on the mantle of CEO here is I've seen what it takes. And it's experiment by experiment, person by person, data package by data package. You sort of build the company up to turn that science fiction into science fact. And I just, I love that. I love that too. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. And so many of the great science fiction writers do an incredible job at predicting the future, like the metaverse is a, is a good example in recent memory from, from Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. But I, I love that we're bringing those uh, science fiction stories to life. I don't know if you knew this, but I spent a little bit of time in the lipid nanoparticle world. When I was an undergraduate, I actually worked in Joe Simone's lab, who's uh, the, I think now the chairman, but was founder and CEO of a 3D printing company, Carbon. So I know a little bit about that world, but I, I hadn't actually realized that you started and did a lot of work there. 
No, that's right. That's where my career started. And I think one of the learnings I took from that is, you know, in engineering, as you know, it's about constraints. It's about how you work within what you have in front of you. And so therefore, concepts like design, build, test uh, come to fruition, whereas pure scientific discovery is one of exploration and asking questions. And one of the reasons I came to flagship is we were doing both at the same time. We were turning biology into an engineering discipline. We were turning scientific discovery into an engineering discipline where you could put constraints up and say, how do we create innovations? How do we ask big questions? And the question we asked at Empress was the predictability, the deterministic nature of the genetic code created untold value and untold impact on patients' lives in the form of biologic drugs, proteins, yeah. cells, gene therapies. We haven't done that. No one, to your point, no one's done that before in chemistry. If that were true, you know, now you've got this really cost-effective modality. You've got the only modality that gets inside of cells, the only modality that you can easily take orally. You can take it as a pill. You can break the pill in half. You can do all these things with it. They just make, chemistry makes for great medicines. And if we could unlock the power of genetics there, man, could we make some great medicines? Yeah. And, and one of the things that I really like about your small molecule approach is I, I interview a lot of people and meet a lot of people that work in precision medicines. And people tend to think precision medicine means gene therapy or means gene editing. But actually, there are more companies that are going you know, understanding biology in some fundamental way and going after a genetically defined cohort, but actually using some of the tried and true tools like small molecules that we have decades of um, drug development experience of delivery. And like you said, they're the only ones that can scalably get inside cells. So I'm wondering, maybe we can dive back into Empress. If we, you've mentioned a couple of the big themes or maybe technology shifts that have added up to bring you to where you are today. You know, you mentioned genome sequencing. The Human Genome Project is now a little over 20 years old, but we've also got advances in machine learning, synthetic biology. It would be really good to hear from your perspective, what are the big set of technological waves or scientific factors that are crashing on the metaphorical beach right now to make what you do possible? That's a great question, Patrick. So I, I can point to two major things. And the funny thing is, by the way, we started working on this, on the, the idea that became Empress maybe six or seven years ago, because we thought that was about the time. It actually was more recent than that in the past few years that it really became uh, actually possible. So maybe we were even a couple of years ahead of our time and the proof is in the pudding ultimately. But so there's two things maybe that I can point to. The first is the biological insight. And then the second is the technical and data aspect of it. And I am going to mention AI. We do use it. I feel like everyone says it, but I'll, I'll you got to these days. Yeah, got to apparently. <laughs> but I'll point to a couple of techniques that we actually use that again as to why it'll answer your question as to why. So the first is the biological. Say you know that that concept of going from DNA to RNA to the proteins, in particular enzymes, and now a step further to small molecule chemical compounds made or modified by those enzymes. That's a really hard problem that I'm describing. Is it's hard enough, you know, we saw with AlphaFold, we saw with some of these other techniques and companies, how hard it is to go from DNA to proteins and protein function and protein structure. So to, to take it a step further seemed like a wild idea, but it turns out it's possible. And well, we know it's true, by the way. We've long known that it's true. So, and so the particular biological insight that we took is we said, let's look in an area where you're most likely to find the most relevant compounds and the, you can tap into the power of evolution. And so 
you know, we talked about the human genome. You know, people talk about the 20,000 genes inside of our you know, chromosomes, inside of our body. Well, it turns out, actually, inside of you, inside of me, inside of every single human being on this planet, there's more than 100 million other genes. They're microbial genes. And you know, we tend to think of those as non-human, but nonetheless, they're actually pretty tightly conserved. It was right. a microbial world before it was a multicellular world. So it turns out, so what, what, what did we do? We looked at 30,000 individuals around the world. We looked at the 100 million plus genes in each of those individuals. By the way, we also looked at the genes, the microbial genes, and the genes of mice, of dogs, of non-human primates, so to capture that evolutionary pressure. Within an individual, you have 10, 30,000 generations of microbes. And there have been something like 100 billion humans that have lived on this planet at some point or another. So you know, do the math there, and you get this huge data set where it's now possible to ask the question, let's actually look at the, the genetic variation of these compounds across individuals, across diseases, across countries. Across, we have data from 85 different countries. And so that was the first biological insight is you've got tens of trillions of little medicinal chemists that live in and alongside of you. They've been at this at a scale that is unimaginable to human medicinal chemists. And by the way, they've been iterating, variating, testing compounds the whole way evolution. So that was the biological insight. Is that's, that's, it's now possible to go from DNA to chemistry. Let's yep. apply it in this area of biology. And then the second is highly related. You know, in the technical insight, we use AI techniques like natural language processing. We treat the DNA like a language. We saw from the large language models, chat GPT, things like that. Artificial intelligence can be really good at parsing syntax and grammar. And that's effectively what DNA is. One, one segment might encode one enzyme, another might encode a different enzyme. How do those come together? Just like the words form a sentence. So we use AI techniques like that. We use techniques from genetics like causal inference, causal enrichment, causal discovery. There are machine learning disciplines built around that to understand how those sequences and those chemistries impact human diseases. And then again, most of this data has really only come out in the last five years. And just as we've seen with some of the AI techniques, some of those algorithms, the math, the underlying math are decades old. It's really only been the advent of data. And so those three things came together to allow Empress to be what Empress is today. So when you look at that, you described a data set of around 30,000 and a plethora of countries, disease states. I'm curious, what are you looking for when you look in a data set like that? Where one place where my mind initially goes is your, you know, your approach seems like it lends itself to finding, you know, people who are genetically protected from disease and then following that thread, for example, to if there's somebody who has a disease causing variant but they don't have the disease. Maybe they have a modifier somewhere else in the genome that's creating a small molecule that, you know, that is counteracting the effect of the disease-causing gene. And, and maybe you can follow that thread. And that's where my mind initially went. But I'm wondering, like, is that one of the use cases? And what other ones are there? What do you learn from the people who have disease? What do you learn from the people who are maybe should have disease but are protected from it? And think about, I guess, following those threads from DNA all the way through to small molecule and seeing where it leads you. Let me bring it to life with two case studies and two vignettes, because I, I, that's a really great question. I think you were putting your finger right on it. So one case study is we looked at maybe a thousand individuals 
with an autoimmune disease. And we had 10,000 plus other people to compare those people against. And we said, what genetic variants in their microbes and specifically the genetic, the genes associated with chemistry. So in a way we're saying what genetic chemistries protect these people against developing an autoimmune disease. And one might hypothesize that those compounds are anti-inflammatory, that they help work on the immune system. And so that's, you can look for protective chemistries, therapeutic chemistries. The other case example is, you know, in the Western world, the majority of the fastest growing cancers are actually related. They appear to be related to diet, nutrition, and the environment. And here's something that's sort of interesting. I've recently learned that, for example, there are these young onset cancers, like young onset colorectal. It's people between the ages of 20 and 50 who develop colorectal. I've heard that there's nothing in the genes of those people, the human genes, that really explains what's going on if you compare them to, say, people in their 60s who are getting colorectal, which is when you normally sort of expect to see it in the population. So, you know, the other question that we can start to ask now with the data set we have, with the algorithms that we have, is to say, well, might there actually be a genetic risk for the disease? It's just not in the human genes, not in the genes that we typically thought of. And ergo, once you figure that out, you can say, well, what are ways to protect against that? What are ways to target the genes that might be causing uh, this increased rate of cancer in young people? So you can ask also, and those are just basic questions. We can ask diagnostic questions. We can do things like, for example, we can take a sample of microbes from individuals and start to predict what kind of disease they have and possibly even start to predict whether they'll have a disease before they even have a disease. And these are areas of active research. And just the way that genetics has transformed how we think about medicine across so many different domains, just as the way AI is transforming our ability to do that so quickly, I think we're right at the edge of it. Yeah. And so if we take that autoimmune example and push it a little further, so do you find that between the people who, the cases and the controls, people who have the disease and people who don't, are you finding that they've got different amounts of the same small molecule cocktail? Are there, or the people who are protected producing something that the people who are susceptible aren't, or are there, are there like, you know, chemistry changes where if you looked at the levels, they'd be the same, but actually there are slightly different versions that act in different ways. What are you, what are you finding? And maybe it's all of the above in in some of the different cases, but what are the I guess on the small molecule or genetic chemistry, I, I like that term. On that level, what's what do you see that's driving the differences in that example? There are a lot of really interesting, interesting questions that you can ask. Like, for example, you know, we know the concept of a genetic knockout. You know, that's, I started my career working in a lab where we thought about that. So now this is a genetic, you could look for genetic chemistry knockouts. Um, uh, you can think about uh, depletion or enrichment. You can think about copy number variation. You can use a lot of the same techniques. To answer your question, yes, you know we're, we're sort of looking at all of that. But let me actually, let me take it one step further because at the end of the day, what I'm describing is insight generation and hypothesis generation. Look, we are a medicine company at, at the end of the day. We want to make medicines. And so for all, you know, for as, as exciting as the genetics and the AI are, you know, what that allows us to do is generate hypotheses and say, we think this molecule is an anti-inflammatory. Yep. And then we make the molecule, we go in the lab, and you got to prove it out. And we are finding things that look like very advanced drug leads. And they're almost development candidates. Well, actually going all the way back to your initial introduction, 
these things have been made and tested inside the body. So in a way, we're not surprised that they look very clean on safety and toxicity panels. Yeah. What's been surprising is we can really actually now find the drug-like compounds, things that look potent, that look selective, that look like they're actually going to act like drugs when you put them into the people in the clinic. Yeah, that's right. There's almost, you just described something that's even simpler and more scalable than the search for the kind of genetic superhero knockout. You really, it sounds like at a base level, you can look at the people with and without disease and say, this, you know, this anti-inflammatory, potentially anti-inflammatory small molecule is produced at a higher rate in these people who don't have disease. So let's, you know, let's chase it down in the clinic and you're starting way ahead, uh, you know, of most other small molecule approaches because it's produced in the body. So it's probably safe. You've got some, you know, biological evidence that it's acting in an anti-inflammatory way. And then you've got, you don't have to reinvent the toolkit downstream of there to test and see if it's got potential to be a good medicine. But to your point, you go to having a, having something to work with much more quickly um, than some of the other approaches. I got that right. No, no, that's exactly it. That's why we, that's why we're so excited if we're right and it looks like we're right, that just means, what does it mean? It means better, faster medicines that get to the clinic a whole lot faster, a whole lot cheaper. And to your point, because of the genetics, because of the human basis, you have a reason to believe that there's going to be a higher probability of success with these yep. things. Where, what parts of biology can this touch? And, and maybe in, another way to ask the question is what parts can't it touch? Like, it sounds like you, you could do inflammation. I mean, that affects everything from immune diseases, neurodegeneration. You've, you've covered cancer. You've covered a huge amount of the uh, space already. But are there areas that you don't think you can address with this? Or is like all of biology a potential? window with this approach? I mean, this will sound wild, but we've looked at a dozen different indications across pretty much all the major therapeutic areas. And there's bioinformatics single in all of them, which now actually sort of makes sense because again, chemistry is the, it reaches every part of your body inside every cell. So why not? Why shouldn't we be able to find drugs? You know, it's another way of saying this is of all the, the billions of people walking around, they probably are walking around with the treatments or the cures for their diseases or their neighbors' diseases, and there's really no limit. Now, for us, it's been a, a strategy question. So we have a great chief scientific officer, Murray McKinnon. He helped develop drugs like Stellara, Remicade, from you know these are drugs that you see on in commercials all the time. Some really great immune drugs. So we've got a lot of immune expertise. So that's where we started. We have our head of biology help put Odomzo, you know, an oncology drug on the market. So we have a lot of oncology expertise. We're being very strategic about the areas that we're going to work in ourselves and then areas that we might work with others. You know, I followed very closely a lot of the early genome-wide association studies that looked at longevity genes. And I think, you know, are approaching in some ways, like it's a, if we zoom out, you all are approaching the same problem. How do we figure out, how do we use human genetics and biology to understand more about uh, how we keep people healthier for longer? But what I what I think is really interesting about this approach is that you can draw the line all the way through to a molecule where those studies were A, underpowered, they weren't really big enough to find anything credible, but B, when they did find things, you, you know, you then where does it lead? Do you, you have a question of whether there's any biology at the end of it? And I and, um, was wondering how, A, how much of the genome fits in this bucket of 
enzyme produce or a, a small molecule production or involvement? And are there parts of it that we actually don't know? I mean, from my detailed human genetics knowledge is a little bit dated, having not done hardcore research for a few years, but there are probably parts of the genome that we don't really know what it does, right? And I'm wondering where that fits into your work. Yeah. So I've got a couple answers, maybe. Uh, one is to your point on SynBio and AI, you know, technology approaches that we put in house. So, you know, trying to figure out how a particular set of genes and a particular set of enzymes might make a particular compound used to be the domain of, you know, essentially like an entire PhD project could be centered around just one of yeah. those things. There have been some advances over the last five years in synthetic biology, the ability to recode those genes, put them into a cell, and see what that cell produces at scale. Mass spec and NMR technologies also go hand in hand with that. And again, I think I mentioned the AI part of reading the genes and trying to figure out which genes are, you know, the dark matter. Most of the genome, yeah. metagenome, is you know, all the non-human and human genes inside of us. Most of that's not particularly well annotated. Well, AI is pretty good at that if you if you give it enough data sets. And I think we've crossed that line now where we can start to make those predictions. And we're seeing that in the lab, the predictions are, are generally quite accurate. So you can start to produce chemistry from genes at scale. And that was one thing that enabled us to do that. The other way to answer it is we did this calculation because, you know, genes have variations over time. I told you we looked at different species. And, you know, we've got all these generations that occur even within the context of one human body, one human life. If you do some of that basic math, you can arrive at this fantastical number of something like 10 to the 24th to 10 to the 28th. Potential molecules have been made and tested inside of humans. And that number, I think, is still larger than any computational approach that I've seen out there. So in a way, you can sort of say, look, nature's done all the work. It's done all this experimentation. You just need to find a few of these things to make some really impactful medicines. Yeah, absolutely. What are the similarities and differences between the biologic revolutions that we see? If we think about you know that really helpful picture that you painted at the beginning, it'd be helpful to hear from your perspective, where could this revolution be similar where you have you know ways to mass produce and scale up biologically derived small molecules? And, and then are there any important differences that you think we're going to need to solve or cross to do this with small molecules? So I'll tackle those two questions. So the first is, what are the analogies with biologics? And there's a couple analogies. So two points of similarity. So one point is biologics tie back to this code of DNA. So you can use recombinant DNA or now RNA and, and other. You can use uh, these technologies to in silico change the design of your drug and very quickly get something that you can test preclinically. Well, we do the same thing. We, we take the DNA that encodes multiple enzymes, we recode it, we have proprietary algorithms that allow us to do this at scale, and then we can just put that DNA inside of a cell, we get the chemical product, and then ultimately, you know, you got to scale that chemical product up, and we can do that synthetically and get perfectly pure compounds. That's just a manufacturing question. So there's an analogy in how we produce the products, and then the second is the nature of the products themselves. So think about antibodies, think about cytokines, think about cells, cell therapies. All those things, even though they're modified, ultimately, they're synthetic often, the starting point came from inside the human body. We know we have antibodies. We know we've got peptides. We know we've got these things inside our body. So there's a reason that you can believe that these things are going to be safer. 
And that's the same with our compounds. You know, we ultimately make synthetic analogs. We make different versions. The route of administration and all these things will change. So you will still have to do FDA or you still have to do clinical trials to really prove out the safety and efficacy hypotheses. But there's a reason to believe that these things will perform at a higher level. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I was curious on, this is more on the company building side, but you all spent a few years in stealth mode. You've launched relatively recently. And I don't think I've ever, ever really asked a CEO on the podcast of what, what goes on in stealth mode. So I'm curious, like during that time, how long was it? Uh, was it challenging to keep uh, what you were doing secret? How tight of a circle did you have to run? What, what does that stealth mode process look like to maybe demystify it for, uh, for everybody who hasn't worked in a stealth mode startup before? Well, you can tell how much I love talking about it. So, so I suppose it was challenging on that front. But no, I mean, the only reason it was stealth is there's no real advantage to telling everyone what we were doing. Because the first three, three or four years that we were sort of working on this, it was just an idea. I don't think we even had a name for this. We just said, wouldn't it be cool if this were possible? Is the data there? Is the technology there? And it was, uh, I mean, that period of time was all science. It was just yeah. pure science. You know, can we get this to work? Is it true? Do we have to violate some fundamental laws of physics to make this true? The reason we came out into the public domain is the platform had been built. It looked like it was working. I mean, we had in our hands compounds, multiple compounds that look like drugs across different targets. So you do it once or twice, that's a cool science experiment. Uh, you start doing it four or five, six times. Now we've done it over a dozen times. You realize, okay, I think this is working. And we had brought on a really accomplished chief scientific officer, Murray McKinnon. We were actually starting to get some inbound interest from other folks who had heard you know, through the grapevine of what we were working on. And so we realized you know, we should unveil ourselves. We're mature enough. We have a good enough patent estate and IP estate that we feel very secure in our competitive advantage and first mover advantage here. And now we're ready for prime time. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, there, there wasn't a particular check set of check marks that for taking a company uh, out of stealth, if that's what you're asking. So what does prime time look like from here? I think you all will face the classic challenge that many platform companies face, which, you know, you mentioned Moderna earlier and, and other companies that have something that's really different. Do you partner with large pharma or other biotechs to take these up, you know, these molecules through to the clinic? Do you do a hybrid where some of them you run internally, others you partner out? How do you think about you know, that question where you have an engine that it sounds like can generate many hypotheses and you're going to have more hypotheses than you may have the you know, ability to chase down internally? So how, how do you think about that process? Well, it's a good problem to have. And in fact, it's a step further than hypotheses. We've, got, we've probably got more products, potential products, than we could uh, develop ourselves. And so, look, this is one opportunity where I don't think you have to choose between the platform or the products. You can have both. And what I mean by that is when I say product, I mean a compound that'll check all the boxes of what you'd expect in a drug leak. It's potent, it's selective, you know, it's orally bioavailable, et cetera, et cetera. So just to go back you know, a couple of minutes, we think we know, actually, that the opportunity is fast. You know, every therapeutic area, multiple indications. We know... In our hands today, we've got multiple potential products, more than we probably could develop ourselves internally. So partnering will be a key aspect of how we get medicines to people a whole lot faster. And that ultimately is the, that's why you do that. 
And there are so many different ways to create value and impact here. You know, we're in the process of figuring out what the right strategy is. So we know that's all on the table. Everything that you described is on the table for us. Is there a limiting limiting reactant in this in this chemistry problem that you have? Do you need more data at the front end to power the discovery engine? Or where is the where is the limiting reactant if there is one in helping you to do this on a bigger scale, create more products, get them into market? The limiting factor is probably going to be the same limiting factor that's true of every potential drug, which is you have to prove it in a patient population in the setting of clinical trials. And so, which, it, you know, on the one hand sounds very obvious, but on the other hand, uh, I think is actually profound for us because what I'm saying, therefore, is that the preclinical aspects are not limited. So what goes in is patient data. We found that we don't actually need thousands and thousands of patients. A hundred patients is perhaps the minimum data set if it's high quality data set. Several hundred is probably better, but that's an easy thing to do is relatively speaking. Get a few hundred patients worth of data, you pour it into the platform. A year later, you have drug leads, compounds that look like they could be drug products. And then the rate living step is, okay, depending on the therapeutic area, depending on what indication, you know, proving out the data package and then getting into the clinic and proving out the clinic. But that's a good place to be. That allows us to think about scale. That allows us to think about how, to, how are we going to be innovative on that front uh, so we can get medicines to people faster. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're right. And I think one of the one of the things that to me is one of the beauties in many ways of drug development is you do have this incredible truth point where clinical trials and the whole process for getting them approved are some of the most rigorous and exquisite experiments that we as humans design. So it is the ultimate test in many ways that that every company has to go through that a lot of industries don't have actually the level of the level of rigor that there is in the in the approval process that you're going to take these uh, mini products through. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, that's actually one of the benefits of being a small molecule drug discovery company. We've been doing it for so long that right. when we hold up our data packages, nobody is sitting there thinking, how are you going to turn this into a medicine? They, they know how we're going to turn it into a medicine. Uh, yeah. and so That's right. Yeah. The, that data that you put in the front and, and the point that you made about not needing a huge amount of patient data is a really interesting one. Is that human germline genetic data plus the metagenome? What, what kinds of samples are those? Uh, and, and maybe it, it probably depends on the disease that you're working in, but it'd be, I'm, I'm assuming that it's not just human. You need some of the metagenome sample as well. Uh, the metagenome is 100% key because that's where the chemistry is being produced. And then this is this actually is, is very akin to what we're finding in other domains where, where artificial intelligence is being applied is that the more multimodal data sets you have, the better. And it's not necessarily quantity of data, it's quality of data. So multimodal means you've got multiple different layers of understanding of what's going on in that patient, in that person. And the highest quality data sets come from clinical trials. They generally tend to because they're quite well-defined cohorts. You tend to know a lot. You have the ability to collect a lot of data set. And then you also said something quite profound, which is the disease matters. For example, in some autoimmune inflammatory diseases, they occur in flares. And there are periods of time where patients look relatively healthy. And when you collect the sample from that patient can impact the types of insights you can get. And we've seen that in our data sets as well. So it's, I know it's a complex answer to what yeah, was 
originally perhaps a, a simpler question, but that's my way of saying it depends. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. It does. I'm I'm conscious of the time that we have here. I yeah, I, th- I think we covered some of the areas that you're going to, I think, have an impact first. You've hired a lot of experts in immunology and oncology in particular, and it sounds like this is going to be the tip of the spear, but you've got opportunities across the board in uh, almost every disease area over time. I was Correct. curious in terms of the you know, your experience as a now multiple time biotech co-founder, what are some of the big lessons you've learned along the way? What are the things that you're bringing to Empress? Is this your third company now that you've co-founded or second? I know you've been early employees at several. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've learned and are bringing to this third or fourth at bat. It's embarrassing. I think I've forgotten how many I've been associated with starting, but so I've done this a number of times to, to your point, Patrick. And I think there are some common themes that have emerged. So one is, and I've said this before, is that big ideas can often take as much work as incremental innovation. And when I describe that data by data, person by person, experiment by experiment, building, building a company, it looks glamorous from the outside. You know, the scientists, all the scientists know that it's the day to day is not glamorous. It's pipetting, it's work, it's doing analysis, looking at itself. It's a lot of work. And so you might as well go for a transformative idea is one theme that has emerged for me. The second is the people really matter. And I know that's a cliche, but even the culture of how do we think about data? How do we think when problems inevitably arise? Are you excited? Do you want to take that on as a challenge? Or do you view that as uh, another sort of hurdle that you've got to jump through? So the, the right type of people that want to do something that's never been done before and are excited when issues pop up, when challenges pop up, because it just represents an opportunity for you to figure out something before the rest of the world can figure it out. That's really important. And then I guess the third aspect would be back to my engineering roots. If you can apply this m- mindset of every time you do something, every experiment, every person you hire, every piece of data gets produced, you learn something from it and you get a little bit faster, you get a little bit better, literally every day. And then you know you're, then you know you've got an actual platform. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, all incredible advice. I mean, the, like you said, the second one is like, it's one of those things that everybody says, but it's absolutely true. And the, I think the first one is such a good point as well about if you're, you're going to work hard, if you're a hardworking, ambitious person, whatever you do, so you might as well swing big, right? Whether you start a, you know, something narrow or something major, you're going to, you're going to work hard. So you might as well swing for the fences. Absolutely. I had a really like very simple follow-up question that I wish I'd asked earlier, but the name, where does it come from? And, and maybe that's a segue to if people want to find you, you are empresstx.com. I think you're probably hiring and I'm going to take a wild guess. It's empresstx.com slash careers. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but where does the name come from? And are there particular people that you want to hear from at this stage in your journey? Well, we take our cues from evolution and from mother nature. She's our empress. And so that's the simple provenance of that name. And then in terms of the types of people, you know, we're well on track to having multiple programs towards the clinic. And so, you know, we will be growing and for the roles across everything, computational, clinical, translational, early biology, discovery biology, uh, those roles will be posted as we start looking for those folks uh, on our website. So that's right. right. Amazing. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate this. I was really excited to do this episode and it was definitely not a disappointment. Thanks uh, so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for having me, Patrick.
anytime. Maybe in maybe in a year or two, we'll have a catch up on what's how many of these are flying through the through the clinical trial process and into the clinic. Well, we keep getting exciting data almost every day now, so I'm sure we'll have some cool stuff to talk about here. Amazing. Well, thanks everybody as always for listening. If you have uh, any feedback for us, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. As I say every every week or every two weeks when you hear my voice, the best thing you can do if you like the podcast is just share it with a friend or colleague that you think would like it. And also we'd love if you leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. So thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>